and welcome to the Strange Brew podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was Mick Grubham and Palam Nocturne from his new album, Original Paint. Mick has had an incredible career over the last 50 or so years, very notable for his long association with Procol Harum as their guitarist, his own band, Cachise and Plastic Penny, and playing with uh, many, many notable musicians in the industry. A huge welcome, Mick. Thank you. Glad to be here. So it's a good place to start in relation to your new album because that's a record that has material from quite a broad range of time, doesn't it? It does, yeah. Well, most of it's antique or vintage, hence the name Original Paint. Harlem Nocturne, was that 2005, that particular track dates to? It was. Well, it's quite a well-known track that's been used for uh, themes for all kinds of, lends itself to detective series, I'd say. And I've always liked it, so yeah, did it in 2005. And the the band that you played in there, you've always played with quite a a, a lot of uh, musicians, and and even in that that period, 2005, you were playing with some great musicians? Yeah, sure, all kinds. I can't remember who's on that now. Graham Walker, who is Gary Moore's drummer. And the, uh, the recordings I did around that kind of time had people like Andy Pyle, who is also Graham Walker, bass player. Mo Foster, who's played bass with everyone. Gary Brooke was on a couple from that period, as well as Clint. You probably know better than me. <laughs> <laughs> the previous guest on the podcast was at Kimberly Rue. He was involved in the, the production side. Yeah, I did it at his studio. They're not far away from me, about a quarter of an hour. Yeah. He's got a nice studio set in the uh, Cambridgeshire countryside. And Original Paint is just therefore a great way of collecting many of the pieces that you've worked on and, and just had stored around for quite a period. Yes. I have to say it wasn't my idea. It was the record company's idea that what have you got that you haven't released and blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, yeah, I've got some stuff. And that's how it all came together. And we'll be closing the podcast later with another track at the end, which does feature Gary Brooker as well. And um, But your story goes back to the 60s. You're from Sunderland originally? Yes. Why I? <laughs> Where was Plastic Penny formed then? Was that up north or was it actually down south? I came home one evening. I was sharing a flat with a guy, a friend of mine, Jeff Dockerty, promoter in the northeast. He came back home. I'd been gigging or something like that. He came back and he said, I've oh, got these guys. I've just seen them down at the, at the uh, local club playing with Chris Lamb and the Universals, they were called. And they made a record, which was... In fact, the plastic playing record on the side from doing that. It was starting to be a hit. They wanted a guitar player. My friend had a Jimi Hendrix haircut. They asked him if he played guitar. I said, no, but I know someone who does. So that's how that happened. Was Nigel Olsen, did he join after then? Once they come to see me, they said, well, we're looking for a drummer as well. So I wrote Nigel. So that's how we came down. And Plastic Penny, a group associated for pop hits, but you were... You know, you had songwriters in the group and were a credible band in in the run, right? Yeah. Well, we started with the pop hit and went through all that period. And then we just started doing stuff that we liked. And that's why I chose a couple of plastic paintings. Because as time went on, I thought, they were really good. They put together really good pop songs of the period, I thought. Yeah. The first track that you um, have chosen is Your Way to Tell Me, which was uh, one of the singles that was from 1968. And that was a a real demonstration that you could combine a bit of a rock edge, but also still got that sort of poppy hooks to to it. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Paul Raymond and Tony Murray were the writers, bass player and the keyboard player. And uh, at the time, they just turned up with a new song and, and we played it. And yeah, yeah, that's good. Fine. And then, but years later, I thought, yeah, they were really good. They came up with stuff that was really quite not the norm. You must have toured quite a lot, especially given you were a, a chart act. Oh, yes. Well, all kinds of things. The usual one-hit wonder story where you start off with a tour and you think, you know, and then your gigs are a bit smaller or suddenly you're doing some cabaret gigs or that kind of thing. Well, that lasted, I think, for a year and a half. And Larry Page was involved. So Page One was his label, but he was also a producer, was he? He produced um, the first few singles. His uh, sidekick, Colin Fretchka, produced the last small batch of singles, which are the good ones, really, in my opinion. Yeah, because as time goes on, the next one was is She Does, which it was another one of the Plastic Penny singles. And as you say, the sound continued to develop in the group. And so by 1969... That rockier edge, and it feels like your guitar sound comes out more in that as well. It do, yeah, it does on that track, yeah, for sure. Yeah, we recorded at Chapel Studios in Bond Street. We'd never 
been there before. And both the tracks we did there got really good sound. But Larry Page, the whole thing of coming to London, we didn't, it's the same thing again, looking back, you just sort of, when you're young, you just sort of go for it, you're living through it. But we didn't realise, you know, we were plonk, bang, in the middle of it all. We were on page one record. We were published by Dick James Music, the Beatles publisher downstairs in the same building. We were managed by a guy called Lionel Conway, who went on to be uh, the Island Music Publishing. We were managed by Lionel, and we were right in the middle of it. All kinds of people, you pass going up the stairs to one of the other offices, up people, you know, we'd only been down there five minutes, and you're passing Paul McCartney on the stairs or something. So it was quite a sort of happening kind of not two days at the same for a, for a while anyway. <laughs> Did you go to any of those uh, those clubs where the musicians frequented, like the Scotch of St James and, and places like that? Um, played at the Scotch of St James. The Plastic Penny played at the Scottish St. James on New Year's Eve. I'm going to say that was 1968 yeah. into 69. Yeah, I used to go to Speakeasy. I went to a few times. And then later in Cochise played there. We had a regular gig at the Speakeasy. Yeah, but only a few of those. Didn't didn't frequent the places like you hear all the uh, stars of the time gathering. <laughs> Plastic Penny, it said that you actually played at the first Isle of Wight Festival. Is that true? I did, yeah. Jefferson Airplane, the top of the bill. We went across in a hovercraft with Mark Boland. T-Rex were on the bill. Yeah. Of course, nobody knew at the time that there'd be a, a second one. It was just, I don't think we went, we went on about sunrise. We were up all night waiting to go on. The sun was just, but as a sign of how things could change, we left there to go and do cabaret in, <laughs> God, I can't remember. Tito's, it was called. Tito's in Derby, I so it was like one extreme to the complete opposite. Was that the tension where on one side you, you're playing festivals or, or gigs that you like, but you've also got that money that you could earn from the sort of chicken in the basket exactly. circuit? Precisely. And was that one of the contributing factors in terms of wanting to call it a day with plastic pennies, that you had that baggage of the pop hit? Yeah, the gigs on the strength of that can only last so long, really. And we didn't have any hits. You know, we had lots of... Uh, praise of a relatively speaking but uh, for the later record but we didn't have any hits and the gigs were drying up as so we made we said right okay we'll pack we'll quit whoever gets a gig gets a gig i can't remember who was first i think tony murray the bass player went to join the trolls at that time paul raymond organist and songwriter singer joined chicken shack i can remember help, helping him take his organ down there for audition and Nige got the gig with Spencer Davis Group, the kind of slightly later Spencer Davis Group after Stevie Winwood. And I went on to join Form Crutches.
to win You had her out, you let her go You didn't care She told me then It doesn't really matter now She's aware You're not the kind to let her down I never That was a bit of a period where you were having to fulfil dates as Plastic Penny, but really it was the early Cachis. Yes. We had a, a tour had come in after the two of the guys had gotten gigs. So Nigel and I did a tour of uh, Germany and we got a bass player in, Freddie Gandhi, to do that. And on the strength of that, we got another tour, but there was no band that. <laughs> so we did it as Cochise. And Rick Wills, our bass player, swears that we were actually announced. I can't remember. I don't know what the deal had been, but I, I can. I personally can remember being announced as the Easy Beats one evening. What? <laughs> yeah, the Easy Beats. <laughs> when it was supposed to be the Plastic Penny, but it wasn't even that, really. Was BJ Cole involved in that early stage? Did he, he come in later? When I'd gotten... Uh, I hadn't previously known Freddie Gandhi, the bass player we used on that German tour, and when I went to see him... He was rehearsing in a basement with Stuart Brown, who I'll come to later, and BJ Cole. And I was knocked out. I hadn't hadn't actually physically at that point in time witnessed anyone playing pedal steel. So I was quite impressed and bore him in mind. The second tour, we went as Cochise. And when we were looking for a singer, I got Stuart, who I'd seen at that earlier period, and asked BJ if he joined me would. Was BJ joining one of the factors in, in the Cachise had a, quite a unique sound? There was a hard rock element and a country element. Kind of covered uh, various genres, really. Yes, BJ's whole thing was to not use the pedal steel in a country fashion. His whole thing was to broaden the scope of what not only the instrument could play, but the kind of music it could play. So all his songs were definitely uh, a bit out. And the uh, Buddy Holly cover, Love's Made a Fool of You, is, is a 
great showcase for for that that sound you've got, which has got the, the pedal steel. But the... yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Having said all that about BJ, we did. It was a pedal steel, so we definitely did things that had a country tinge to it, nevertheless. And the bit of that is, is apparent in uh, Love Made a Fool of You. Yes, we rehearsed that at a place Upshire, I think it's called Hertfordshire, Essex, which is where Humble Pie, who was kind of just forming then, in rehearsing. And we had a Humble Pie connection because of Rick Wills and Willie Wilson, bass and drums, were Cambridge lads, as was Jerry Shirley on the bass drum. So it was like a kind of incestuous thing. <laughs> in, in that early period as well, you got a little bit of a leg up from Dick James' music, giving you connection? Oh, yes. Well, yeah, that was another fantastic thing. Again, at the time, you kind of took for granted that we could use a studio anytime. It's only a little demo studio, but it was an eight-track studio. And you could come out with reasonable stuff. Yeah, I mean, that's where we first got together in that studio, I do believe. And lots, loads of other things. It was a kind of hub. Half of us hung out there. Because, well, Elton John was happening just starting up doing his first album on DJM. Nobody called him Elton at that time. It was Reg and Bernie. And Caleb Quay, who's guitar player that played quite, quite a few so there was quite a, a connection in, in that time, given the connections with Elton's group. Yeah, well, that came about because uh, Dee Murray, Elton's bass player, who's now passed away, unfortunately, he played in a band called The Mirage, who were also on page one record. So we knew all those guys as well. And Nigel and Dee were both in the Spencer, that version of the Spencer Davis group. You were under a, a management framework with there was other bands like Trees and Hawkwind, so it was quite a, oh, a varied roster. Yeah, in Cochise, Trees, Hawkwind, band on CBS called Skin Alley, another band called High Tide, and they were all oddball bands. And the people who run who managed them all, Clearwater Productions, were all oddballs, but in a great way. And the place that they ran it from was oddball. Yeah, that was a whole. The whole scene for a couple of years. <laughs> and so um, Cachis only lasted a, a few years. Why only that short span? Did, did things just come to a natural end with a variety of musicians? Yeah, it kind of fizzled out really after the third act. We did three albums and yeah, it did. That was, I think, probably late 71, maybe early 72, I guess. Not very good at the chronology. And everyone went on to join, to join different people really.
And so it was a another year or so that you got the call to join Procol Harum. How how did that come about? Um, after Robin Trower left the band, someone had told me that they were looking for a guitar player. So I called Chrysalis, and they'd just taken on this, uh, the guy, Dave Ball, who played on the uh, live with the Edmonton Symphony Orchestra album. So that was it. I thought I might miss that. But I was keen because I knew the music. I liked, I really liked their album. Not that I had all their records, but the ones I had, I really, really liked. And I'd, te- and I'd worked out the uh, some of the... Uh, Difficult chord changes that occur in a lot of odd contracts. So I knew some of the music. So when they did call after Dave Ball had gone a year later, I was kind of semi-prepared. <laughs> yeah, because I think they, they were recording Grand Hotel and Dave Ball left during the recording. So you came in, uh, were parts laid out or, or oh, no. were you able to no. express? I was able to do all that. No, no, we'd, all the tracks were re- re-recorded. We, there was an overdubbing right. on tracks that already existed and replacing anything. They were all totally re-recorded. No, no, I was never, you know, unless it was an obvious, this is the, the riff, so obviously you play this. That was at Air Studios, George Martin's studio in London. But I didn't get the job that day. We had There was a second get-together at something, I can't remember where, some theatre. What got me the job was, apart from playing... A couple of new tracks that I would never have heard of anyway. They did Salty Dog. Well, there's no guitar on Salty Dog, but I'd worked out a little guitar part and I knew it. And I knew they were impressed, or Gary at least, at the time. But I didn't think, right, I've done it. Yeah, that was handy to know. Yeah, because from Grand Hotel, Bringing Home the Bacon, that was a song that was featured in, in the live set in the what? 70s and uh, became one of the highlights from that era. Uh, well, yeah, it seems to have at the time. Just playing it. It was only later. Oh, yeah, that must have been worth doing all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was probably, I don't know if it was Grand Hotel or that track. They were the first two tracks that I recorded. It might have been Grand Hotel first. I can't remember it now.
got a great session here that you did with Yvonne Elliman, uh, Love's Bringing Me Down from the Food of Love album. Yeah. Was it, I mean, I've spoken to a lot of musicians who've had sessions. Did you get any notice of, of what you were going in for or was it you completely blind for this uh, this record? Completely blind, yeah, no idea. I knew it wasn't going to be hairy rock and roll, but I knew it was going to be quite musical. But apart from that, no, nothing. Yvonne had, had featured in Jesus Christ Superstar, and but the production as well, Rupert Hines. So it's quite a bit of pedigree in terms of that album. You really have to sort of make sure that you're on on top of your game. Yeah. Well, I'd just um, I'd done something else for Rupert, and I can't remember what. No, he was really good, and uh, I was on there with good players. John Gustafson on bass was brilliant, and he used to play in the Big Three in the Liverpool days, and I loved. Big Three Live at the Cabin on Decca, 1963, I think. So it was always good to play. He was still a hero on Decca. <laughs> it's said that Caleb Quay featured on that album as well. Was he on, on the tracks that you featured on or was he separate? Um, on a couple. I'm, well, a couple for sure. Yeah. But uh, I don't think he's on this one. Yeah, Caleb was a good friend. Really great player. Fantastic player. He just had or has it, the feel. He's not a whiz kid all over the fretboard. He just got it. Anyone who knows him would agree, I think. In the beginning, something was said and misunderstood. In the beginning, it wasn't so good. There was no excuse and no abuse, just a turning away from the sun. It should not have begun What can you say When time falls away And words hang and say Nothing to give Nothing you've got that he'll take Nothing left to share around Nothing but weeping inside Oh, love's bringing me down Just an early morning bring down Oh, love's bringing me down Bringing me Conversations, you complaining about my voice. I can't remember what 
As we move on with superb Prokel Harm material in that page from the album Exotic Birds and Fruit, we have Thin End of the Wedge. So th- this time I've read that Gary was kind of wanting to have less orchestration and get more of a band and guitar feel at that time. Is that what you recall? Yeah, well, actually, you're right. I've never thought about it. There is any orchestra on that album, is there? Not that I'm aware of. A bit of a departure, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I guess in a way, it's it's showing the confidence in the in the group even more, and especially you as as the guitarist to hold the material. Yeah, well, it's of the albums that I was on, it's my favourite, and I don't, I just like most of the tracks on, not because necessarily they're guitar, slightly more guitar oriented. Back at Air Studios, same studios, yes. Chris Thomas, the producer, he must have been quite young at the time, although obviously with a, a pedigree going back. Yes. During that period, he'd just done uh, Brian Ferry. Ah. And that was a big hit. What are they called? Brian Ferry. Got Roxy Music. Music. He'd just done their first single that he was uh, quite pleased about. Lots of tours and li- live dates for Procol Harum at, at that time? Oh, yeah, sure. All over the place. Initially, that was quite uh, eye-opening, going to the States and things like that. Different scale, though, compared to Plastic Penny. Oh, yes. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, a completely different thing. You know, the first time 
that I went to the States with the band. On arrival, the, uh, there's a Cadillac waiting to take us to the hotel, and the guy's a black guy called Gibson. I'm a guitar player. You get in the car. What's your name? Oh, Gibson. I'm in the right place. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it went. Yeah, yeah. So was it a, arena stadiums at that time? Big concert halls for Prockle Harem? Uh, mainly theatres, uh, sometimes bigger venues, but mainly theatres and the like, or have huge basketball arenas and the like, and universities and colleges there, all kinds of places, as well as, well as places like that played the Hollywood Bowl. Yeah, so it was, you're right, quite different from uh, Tito's in Derby. Picture, story, picture.
and we have a, another piece of your session work, but a hugely successful one this time. We have the, the soundtrack to the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and of all the tracks, obviously, the, the one that everyone knows is the Time Warp. But you, you were on the, the whole of that soundtrack, I, was, I yeah. understand. Along with BJ, the drummer. Um, I picked that one because I can't remember the name of any of the others, except something about Eddie and his Teddy. I thought, well, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> <laughs> that was in the middle of that, but uh, it was uh, exactly when it was because my daughter was born during the born in that, 1974. That was good fun. That was um, Olympic Studio. There were good fun sessions, actually. And later in proceedings, all the singers turned up. Meatloaf, I'm not sure he was called Meatloaf. And a girl singer whose name I can't remember at all, who was really good. And Tim Curry. Of course. So, yeah, Meatloaf was, I don't think he might have been, but I wouldn't. Probably Marvin at the time. Quite right. <laughs> was Richard O'Brien, was, was he involved in the studio yeah. at the time? Oh, yeah, sure, absolutely. And his co-writer, or I assume they were co-writers, piano, uh, somebody Hartley, can't remember you first. But yeah, oh yeah, he was completely involved. How did it work in in, uh, in a session like that? Did you have musical charts, or how, how did the music w- was uh, shown to you and the group? Or was it on acoustic? Or um, sorry, I can't remember the guy's name. Hartley. He was piano player, and as I say, I assume he wrote with Joe O'Brien. He'd play the thing. First of all, they'd give you the title, so you know if it's something like if it, when Eddie lost his Teddy, you know it's not. <laughs> you know the kind of thing it's not going to be. And the lineup was two guitars, piano, bass, and drums. So, and it was the, the Rocky Horror Show. So you knew it was going to be rock-ish to whatever degree. And he'd just play the thing, and we'd just learn it. They're all pretty straightforward, chord change kind of thing. Odd little bit here and there. Run it a couple of times. And I don't remember any charts. There would have only been uh, chord charts anyway. But I don't recall any charts at all. And I assume you just got a standard session fee for what became one of the biggest soundtracks of all time yeah that's correct didn't realize that at the time of course that it was that was still of uh, relevance now it's astounding time is fleeting madness takes its toll But listen closely Not for very much longer I've got to keep control Jump to the left. And then you step to the right. With your hands on your hips. You bring your knees in tight. And as the bell rings out. And then you touch them and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do the time bomb again. Let's do the time bomb again. It's a dream. So you can't see me. No, not at all. 
in another dimension with voyeuristic intention well secluded I see all with a bit of a mind flip you're into the time slip and nothing can ever be the same you're spaced out on sensation like you're under had the recording of Rocky Horror, the soundtrack in 74. We move forward a, a little bit to the album Prokel's Ninth and the track Pandora's Box. And that was a period where, was it Libra and Stolo were involved with Prokel Harem at the time? It was, yeah. They produced that album and that track. They were brilliant. They were, well, they were Libra and Stolo. <laughs> they had stories galore of fabled singers and players. Really brilliant. They were really nice people, right? That was done at the uh, Who's studio in Battersea, Ramport. And they had a totally different regime to what we've been used to working in the studio. We'd start at 12 and we'd pack up. Maybe it was before 12, maybe it was 11. And we'd pack up there. We finished by 6 or 7, maybe 8. But it was a sort of a working day. They treated it as opposed to we, a lot of the time previous to that, just go on till you finish. Because somebody said, all right, let's pack it. But they were really, really fantastic work. Do you think that that impacted the Procol Harum sound at that time? Was it a bit more of a direct well, sound? Or? As producers, I thought that, um, they were more bothered about the music and what was going on and the parts and this, that and the other than the sound. Not that they weren't bothered about the sound, right. but they weren't fanatical about it like people are <laughs> in studio. They weren't demoing the uh, the drums for hours like Ken Scott, for example. Yeah. <laughs> no, that was really good. They were excellent and super just knowledgeable. They just knew, you know, what to do musically. Was it just the, the vagaries and shifting sound in the music industry by the late 70s that contributed to the demise of Procol Harum in, in that period and obviously you venturing on to, to new projects? Yeah, it's just, yeah, we were suddenly just... The gigs were lesser gigs. We were supporting other acts, which we occasionally did before anyway, depending on that, but now we were being more of a support band. And on the last tour, at least, and it just sort of drifted apart.
so after Procol Harum, um, how long did you stay playing in groups on a professional basis, and, and when did you um, venture onto, onto onto different things? Um, till around nineteen late eighties, I don't know. Sort of drifted. I drift in and out of that. Uh, sometimes over that period, I, do, I did a lot of work. Then sometimes I didn't, and then sometime around two thousand, I've always been an amplifier freak electronics and i kind of cracked the code of what was going on and realized and learned a huge amount from various people and started building amps making amps suddenly i could i knew what the crack was i knew it wasn't perfect didn't and that kind of took over obsessively <laughs> and still does to a degree i've learned with quite a few people after that uh, mickey jump oh yeah jump from south end yeah might have played in Bandit after that, and that was and the, that was a record that was never released. An album was then produced by Matthew Fisher, the original organ player from Volvo. There he says, I did uh, the Dukes with Miller Anderson, Charlie Tumahai, that I toured with Bats Domino, <laughs> which was amazing. Yeah, he was the only white man in the band, all the rest of the guys were from uh, New Orleans, most of them had been with a decade. And it was just a treat. For our last track, uh, Mick, we go back to Original Paint and uh, the song Brand New Tango. I think you had the phrase of that in the, the late 70s. So this this is this was recorded again around 2005. So it's a it's something that stayed with you over the years in terms of this this song. Yeah, general idea changed over the years. And this is just the latest of them. Yeah, it changes whoever you're playing with. We've done one way and then it Another way, all not dissimilar, but different. But yeah, I like this one. And you've got some of your old bandmates, Gary Brooker, Rick Wills, and Graham Walker playing with you on this one as well. Yeah, this was done at Kimberly Roof's studio again. It's got rather a long ending. I was going to fade it, but I just like the fact that it keeps storming on and then falls back. And so in, in relation to the uh, the future, is it a case of um, the music that you've made, um, promoting that and, and getting that in, in front of people? Yeah, I've got loads more stuff and more time to work on it for the future. And uh, got a few things, a friend of mine in uh, in the States, that I, I produced an album by him for Atlantic in, in the 70s, early, about 1970s. And he's got connection with Muscle Shoals. So I hope you're doing something with that. With him very shortly, sing a song and what else turns up. Lots to look forward to. Mick, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you. It's been great to uh, to hear your memories today. Great to talk to you and thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Nice one. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew Podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.